Hi everyone, I'm Dave Levine. This is episode 40, the last episode of series four of the Sports Stories podcast. It's really great to have you with me and I hope you've had a good week so far. We've had an amazing time bringing the Sports Stories podcast to you. We spoke to some incredible people over the last year from a range of backgrounds and experiencing varying levels of success. We've really hoped to give parents, teachers, coaches, leaders, and athletes and performers a real great insight into the world of sport from different perspectives. Our desire has always been to provide inspiration, education, and transformation for those people involved and or interested in sport. So if this is you, then you're in the right place. Last week's episode was with Lou Englefield. Lou gave a real great insight into her story from when she was a child and the struggles, as well as the highs of how she navigated through sport, right through to being the director of the Pride Sport Movement, where she champions a lot of human rights issues through the vehicle of sport. It's an amazing organisation doing some great work. Lou had a steely determination, passion and perseverance in all the work that she's done. And today's guest has a bucket load of this as well. I'm so pleased to have Karen Brown MBE as my final guest in Series 4. Karen amazingly has been involved in six Olympic Games, three as a hockey player and three as a hockey coach. In my mind, she has had some career there and what an opportunity it is to get an insight from such an experienced individual. Karen is a really great people developer and whatever she does, she always does well. So I'm confident there'll be great tips, guidance and loads of inspiring stories from her today. So go grab a cup of tea, get a notebook, jump on your bike, go out for a walk, do whatever you do to get the best out of listening from these podcasts because there's some great inspiration here available for you today and information to really help you on your way. So please sit back, enjoy, and all it leaves me now to say is a very, very warm welcome to my special guest, Miss Karen Brown. Karen, it's really great to have you with me on the Sports Stories podcast. Thanks for giving up your time. I'm dead excited to be speaking to you today. So, so welcome. Thank you very much. It's, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to the next hour or so. Great, great. Well, Karen, look, a place I usually would start is just to um, introduce my guest. And rather than me introduce you, do you want to just give us a little bit about, um, you know, your background and how you got into sport as a way of introduction? Oh, goodness. OK. <laughs> um, I hate talking about myself. So this is going to be an interesting hour for me, isn't it? Uh, well, sport is, 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 you know, formed the bedrock of my life, really. So um, in a nutshell, in three or four sentences. So I was an Olympic athlete. Um, competed in three Olympics as an athlete in the sport of hockey. Uh, I then became a coach. I then became a national coach and then competed in three Olympic Games as a coach. Um, So six Olympics, so you can start working out my age from that if you like. Uh, And what's that led to me? I've been working, so currently work in a sort of coaching, mentoring space, coach development space, uh, working with professional and Olympic sports. Well, let's take us back to sort of nearly day dot. Okay, you've worked obviously in six Olympics. How did you get into sport? And you know, what was the family kind of set up and your introduction to that? Um, And then we'll work our way towards the the Olympics and and so on. Yeah. Um, Well, my father, um, my father was a a, a talented sports person. He played, um, he played football to a very high level. He went to the 1960 Olympics for the last time England sent a football team before London 2012. And my dad um, participated in Rome 1960. But he played for Wimbledon Football Club. Um, and I was born probably around the peak time of his career. Um, I had an older brother. 
<clears throat> he was a talented sports person, went on to play football again, you know, Southampton Football Club. Uh, and my dad was also a really good cricketer and cricket was his sort of passion in life. So every weekend, winter, summer evolved around football or cricket or sport. Um, so it, I'd kind of, it was just a way of life in our family. Yeah. Um, on a Saturday lunchtime, it was fairly typical when we were all growing up, we'd all have, you know, sort of Sunday lunch, Saturday lunch together, which would yeah. involve sort of French bread and cheese and ham and things like this. <laughs> and then we'd all, and soup, and then we'd all jump in various vehicles to get to whether it was athletics, football, hockey, round, you know, any sport, we did it. Um, and apparently, well, this is sharing a bit too much information, but my mum and dad always said the first word that I ever said was goal. Whether that is true, I very much doubt. But I was at um, Wimbledon, the old plough lane at Wimbledon Football Club, right. and apparently there was a goal scored and everyone in the stand jumped up and I was sitting on my mum's knee and just repeated goal, 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 goal. And that was apparently all I said for the rest of the day and the evening. Um, yeah. What a sport, fabulous story that is. <laughs> yeah. And you and sport at that young age, what, what did you play? What, you know, you, you mentioned there a couple of things and going off in the cars, but did you, did you play football, cricket, hockey? What, you know, what was your, um, your involvement in sport? I didn't play hockey till quite late on. I, I basically, having an older brother, I lived in quite a rural area. Right. So um, our group of friends were mainly, mainly boys. There was another female, but, you know, like within walking distance, or they were, they were all boys. So it's football, really. Football, team sports, running. I, I was aware very early on in my life, I became quite conscious that I was good at sport. And that sounds very arrogant now yeah. when I say it, but you know when you can do things that other people can't do? Yeah. I was like, I was aware that I could do them and I could do them better than, like, other kids in my class at school this is what I'm talking you know four or five years old yeah 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 and I, I had an experience that I can still remember to this day which was a, um, a, a teacher that I had at primary school called a Mr Shawnee and he was like this really very elderly gentleman completely white hair always wore a grey suit um, and we were doing rounders so he was taking us in his you know like in his grey suit and his and it was summer and we were doing rounders and we were learning the game of rounders because like no one knew how to play it that's how young we were yeah and I remember he put me at backstop you know I think it's called that so backstop isn't it up behind the yeah, yeah yeah and the what happened is someone bowled the ball and it hit the bat and I dived to my right and I caught it basically in my right one-handed in three three fingers and my thumb and it stuck and I held onto it and this teacher, who was really stern, really like everyone, all the kids were a little bit afraid of him like this. And he just looked at me and he looked at me and he went, I don't know what sport you're going to do, Karen, but whichever one you choose, you're going to play for England in it. Oh, and I remember gosh. I was still lying on the ground with this rounders ball. And I just remember picking it up and throwing it back. And I couldn't get what he said out of my head. Couldn't get, and I didn't tell a soul. Like, I didn't tell my mum and dad, my pa but I can clearly know when I, I made my debut at Wembley hockey for England uh, for the senior team I made it at Wembley Arena I remember standing in the tunnel and I remember thinking that that feeling that came back to me at that moment 
that um, story hey, and the impact of that story yeah yeah and and what that meant and i'm sure none i have no recollection of any of my friends or others like commenting on it or anything but i can i can even still now to this day feel that rounders ball in my hand how i caught it which is bizarre I, I, isn't it well, it is, but, but, but as you're telling the story, Karen, I can feel the kind of the hairs on the back of my neck come up, you know, because it's a powerful message, mm. that, isn't it? And, you, you know, to hear that from a, a PE teacher at that young age as well. No, you no, know? no, he wasn't a PE teacher. So he wasn't a PE teacher. So no, he wasn't yeah. a PE teacher. He well, was, that was the days where, like, I was, you were, I was probably five or six years old. Well, uh, yeah. And that was when the teacher did every lesson. Everything. So a teacher. Everything, Yeah. yeah. And he, he was like, he looked like he was 70. He looked like my grand, he was old, looked older than my granddad. And he was our form, yeah, he was your form tutor. Yeah. Um, and he said this, and I just remember, wow. To this day, that is such a strong memory for me. I never was, a, I think he'd passed away because I did try and track him back when I was right. like 19, 20. Because um, I'd love to have shared with him. You were right. <laughs> you were right. Well, I, yeah. You were right, and I showed you that you were right, or I proved you right. No, yeah. it, was no it was nothing. It was yeah. it was something about I can't even. I always held strength with that because as a as yeah. an athlete, I think I was one of those people that was driven more by a fear of failure, yeah, than a fear of success. So I was always I had more doubts about myself than other people did. Yeah. Um. And uh, his wisdom something that almost like drove me on and kept me kept me pushing yeah not that I doubted that I could do it because I didn't doubt that I could do it but it was the fear that that evoked in me at times wow and um, what else have you taken out of that message for you as you've gone on, along in your career though that kind yeah. of fear of failure or um it's what it's what motivates people isn't it there are different motivators for different people um one of the things that I was really conscious of when I did start coaching and I started coaching you know when I was still playing and I started in like primary schools and schools and it was it was actually there's nothing wrong with telling people if they're good at something and quite often we tell we tend to focus on people who can't do things in teaching and learning like in school and it's like how can we help them and actually the people who are very good at something we kind of think oh they're doing all right they can carry on but the importance of uh you know just a pat on the back or just a word of encouragement you do realize you're really good at this don't you you do realize that you know you've got a special talent here um you know rub it shine it do whatever you can but make but consciously be aware of what skills you've got within i think especially at a young age i think it's really important and I'm I'm really guessing here, but in that environment back there, that approach would have been completely alien. You know, not, not many people would have gone around and told people what they're good at. Well, I certainly, you know, no, I don't think people did, mm. um, you, you know, and it, I can tell how rare it was for someone to say something like that because it, of how much it stuck in my, yeah. in my head. Um, I, I, I just think, when I look back, I, I don't know whether it's linked to being a girl as well, because it was rare for people to express talent in females. In boys, it was a lot easier for, I think, people to do. Because right. if, if you were a girl and you were talented at sport, there weren't the avenues that are open to today. It was like, I couldn't, 
I never imagined that I could have a career in sport because right. there wasn't any apart from being a teacher, probably. Right. Um, you know, to earn a living from doing something that you love, probably pretty rare in sport yeah. for a female back so, in the sort of 80s and 90s. So what, tell us a bit more then about the avenues that you did end up taking and how you kind of progressed through which avenues, given that, you know, yeah. you clearly ended up in a, in a place, a number of Olympics, but actually right back then, what was in front of you and how did you navigate those avenues? Um, well, if I talk about my sporting career, so as I say, you know, sport was just part of our way of life. After school, my brother and I, you know, I've got a younger sister, but she's eight years younger. Um, as she got older, she did join in with us. But by then, we'd already sort of started to move into more organised sport. Yeah. So growing up, everything was just about, you know, playing outside till it got dark, never getting tired, never feeling playing any ball sport. You know, our imagination just ran, ran riot. Oh, we that. lived in a fairly rural area. So, you know, open fields, place, you know, climbing trees, building camps, everything. We did it. But we had more fun when it involved a ball. Right. Um, so that side of it got developed. I, I followed my brother into football, really. Loved football, absolutely loved it. And I was good at it. I played in a boys' team. I could hold my own. You know, I was... The boys wanted me to play in their team because I brought something to it. Yeah. Um, but then when I reached the age, and I, I don't know, I think back, I think it was probably when I got to about 11, um, basically I had to stop playing women's football. I had to, Or I had to stop playing football because the rules in the league that the team I played for didn't allow girls, you know, it was against the rules that girls could play. There were no girls teams that you could join. So all of a sudden, all my friends, all my mates, like they, they could just carry on and I had to stop. And I remember oh, feeling so angry and annoyed that, well, what am I going to do? Um, and I started, um, I joined an athletics club. I was quite talented. I was quite fast. Um, and I was also you know, I'd, I'd been spotted by, you know, local school sports things. Yeah. And a coach has said, would you want to join? So I joined Croydon Harriers Athletics, um, got involved with a coach and a coaching group of athletes. And, you know, I, I was reasonably talented, uh, ran for the county, you know, cross country. I was quite good in those days. Um, got to a reasonable level, sort of just below international standard. Um, got to about, I think I was about 15, 16 and I was at school and my best friend used to live at the back of the school playing grills. And we used to, we used to walk home and go past the school playing fields and go to back to her place for lunch, which we weren't meant to do because it involved <laughs> climbing over the fence at the back of the playing field. But, but in doing that, there was the school first team were having a training session of hockey and we, the two of us made out, we were watching the hockey match, like we had an interest in it. Actually, we were going to go and climb the fence. And someone in the first team got injured. Um, and the teacher who was taking the lesson went, come on then, Karen, you come and play. And when I'd done hockey at school with lessons, it had been with other people in my class, other girls, not with boys, only with yeah. girls. And to be honest, it was awful. I hated it because yeah. no one could trap the ball. No one could stop it. But when I then started playing in this practice session I was playing with the first team of the school and everyone could play it and I was like well I quite like this you know it was like football and it was really easy for me because I'm lucky that my hand-eye coordination is pretty good and then the teacher said to me she went mm, 
it's the school county tournament at the weekend. <laughs> she said, and she literally said, do you want to play? Can you play? And I didn't have an athletics meeting, thank goodness, that, week, that, that weekend. So I said, yeah, okay. Went back, told my mum and dad. And my dad, I do remember my dad saying, you'll like that. You'll enjoy that. Anyway, went to the tournament. The school, you know, really fortuitously for me, we had some talented hockey players. I didn't know this, yeah. you know, when um, when I've never I been around them though. Why would you? I guess exactly. <laughs> never, never. In, you know, hadn't wasn't involved in the sport at all. And anyway, we got to the final of the of the county tournament, which was a huge thing. We're a little comprehensive school in the middle of nowhere. nowhere. <laughs> we're, we're rural. Uh, anyway, the back of that, off the back of that, about six weeks later, I was playing for the county of Surrey. Three months after that, I was playing for the South of England. And by the end of like another, within four months, I'd gone from not playing the sport to being selected for England under 18s. And I was 16. And, you know, it was, I'm lucky that the sport was really similar to football. So for me, it was just football with a stick in my hand. Um, in, in looking back and going through that story, and I, I, you know, I'm, I'm blown away by it actually. But what what for you has been the kind of the key principle or message that you get out of that journey that you went on there? I I'm I'm a believer that if um, especially in a young age, I don't yeah. believe in specialising in any one sport. Yeah. Um, I definitely um, believe in experiencing many 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 different. Um, as many sports as you can and find out what what fits for you what you like what you because you'll learn things from I learned an awful lot from athletics I learned a lot about myself and the main thing I learned about myself was I wanted to be part of a team I actually was so incredibly nervous from competing on my own that I wanted to be part of a team so I'd, I'd keep going back to team sports you know football, cricket, any hand-eye coordination sport, basketball, round, anything that involved a ball I liked. Um, And I guess hockey really became my sport because it was the only one really for girls. There was netball, but I didn't really enjoy netball. You know what I didn't enjoy about netball is lines on the pitch and you could only go in certain areas. You were constrained by it. I was constrained (laughs) by it. Whereas, uh, you know, and, and even then I played centre for the school, so I could go everywhere. Oh, apart pretty from much most anyway. <laughs> exactly. But it still frustrated me. Um, so, yeah, so to go back to what would the lessons be, is I constantly, um, you know, when I go and do, you know, keynotes in schools or talk to young kids, I'm like, yeah. really explore and find your niece, find what you want to do. Don't be restricted by, well, the school doesn't do rounders anymore or find out about it. It might be a sport that you want to do, like just try it out. Um, and yeah, you, you, you'll find your route and your avenue just like I did. Um, and and there are opportunities also open up, but it's mm. not about necessarily the sport. It's about the culture behind the sport and all the learnings that you take about, you know, teamwork, you know, or teamwork or just, you know, how do you develop teamwork in others? How do you help your teammates? How do you do? But it was exactly the same in athletics. You know, I ran in relay squads and 
how do you build you know you can take bits of learnings yeah. from everything however small and apply it in other parts of your life but I, i'm really struck by the fact you know you did quite consciously go to so many different environments to learn from them i'm sat here thinking well you know you, you can't learn those unless you give them a go or expose yourself or have a have a you know a play in a different environment different sport and you know that's that seems really powerful from your message and you know you picked up opportunities everywhere which actually all informed actually where you went next I think so. I think it's interesting that you see them as opportunities. I thought I had limited opportunities yeah. compared to my brother. And then my brother yeah. used to say, you know, he he was quite in fact, I didn't ever thought this at the time, but in retrospect, he probably was because he he basically became he he was one of the first people at the school. He went he became an apprentice at Southampton Football Club. He got right. scouted. Um he went you know, became signed schoolboy forms with Southampton. And I remember, you know, when we were about 14, 15, I would have been 13. And I remember just sitting, chatting to him. And he said, it seems so unfair that I've got all these opportunities and you haven't got them. There's no real avenue for where you can go. And he said to me, and it, this really shocked me again, but again, I remember it really clearly. He said to me, and you're more talented than me. <laughs> and in my head, like, this is my big brother who... To, and was you know he was a brilliant footballer obviously and he was really talented but he was saying this to me and I don't know if he was saying it to make me feel good or or anything but he was right I was very conscious of what I couldn't do more than I was conscious around what I could so I had to really look hard for the opportunities of what sports to do and how to do it and do you um, think Karen is that what made you a talented sportswoman the fact that you you knew what you couldn't do and therefore worked very hard at that and other things? Um, I think linked to, I, I knew that I had sort of some sort of innate talent around sport. Okay. Right. So I knew I had a, I knew I could see things on a field of play quicker than other people. Right. I learned that over time that I could see things quicker than other. I was kind of two or three plays ahead. Yeah. I could read the flight of a ball or the, you know, the speed, the pace. And I realized that I could, do that it's a bit like when you see someone who's really good at maths isn't it yeah. one of my best friend at school philippa harris she was <laughs> often and uh, she could see things in maths and i'd just be looking at this and going i just don't get it i just you know however long i'm going to look at this i just don't get it yeah. and she would go yeah it's easy look you do this 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 and this and that's what it felt like for me at any sport that i did it was just like i just do it and it just seemed to come quite natural i didn't really feel that I had to work hard at it. I obviously right. did work hard at it, but it didn't feel like really? hard work. Yeah. It just felt like, oh, I just, I'm just really curious about, and if I do this with a, a shot or a tackle, how it changes the angle and, and then changing. So it didn't feel like work. Yeah. I was always curious to explore right. different right. ways of doing things. So, you know, if I chip a ball with the outside of my foot, well, I can get it to curve that what, way. What would happen kind of stuff. What yeah. would happen if I did that? So that, and because, you know, I was fortunate that I had, you know, fields around where I lived, where right. I could go and like just practice on my own. Could I hit, could I hit the goalpost with the ball curving? You know, it just, it just like, so I developed sort of uh, skills, technical skills by practice really, yeah. but they would, it felt like fun. It didn't feel like 
drilling or practicing or, you know, or hard work as you described it. Well, and and I was also drawn to the idea of what does a high performance, high performing family look like, actually, you know, with your dad and your brother and you, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of conscious or curious about the environment that you were brought up in and whether that helped, whether it was an innate thing or whether actually the environment that you were allowed you and developed that curiosity. I think so. I think if you, you know, your family is, is immersed in and all you, and your all the cues that you're getting in your life when you're really young are around sport and the friendship. So it yeah. wasn't just the sport. It was like all our family friends were from the sporting background, yeah. you know, like all fellow colleagues of my dad's. And, and my mum played a really big part in this because my mum was kind of the glue that held us all right. together. Yeah. She didn't play any particular sport. Um but was, you know, was very encouraging and was the one who would make sure we were at the right place. My mum didn't drive, um, but she was the one who made sure everyone turned up at the right place with their packed lunches, with the right kit on, you know, do you know what I mean? So yeah. she was in the background sort yeah. of uh, helping us all on the way. The proper team, um, proper sort of home team there, wasn't there, in terms of getting, yeah. getting you there? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's weird when you look back on, on, you know, your life's experience and how did your formative years drive what you became. I just think it's all I've ever can remember. I can't remember, you know, most of our conversations at the dinning table or in the evening revolved around sport. Obviously, we spoke about loads of other things as well, yeah. but predominantly it was around. Like we, we are, we as a family, apart from my younger sister, um, we're all huge Man United fans. Right. Now we live down south, so and now your people are going to say, right? Why are you Man United fans? You know your southern stereotype. So everyone laughs at that. But at those days, this was before Man U were the successful, yeah, yeah. you know, entity. Like I remember, like when Man United got relegated to the old second division, yeah. and I remember, um, you know, like we hadn't won the league in you know, since Sir Matt Busby is, but my dad took us to watch, um, and this was such a privilege, which I didn't realise at the time. Yeah. We went to Old Trafford and we watched Man U versus Man City in the local derby and playing for Man U was Bobby Charlton, Dennis oh. Law and George Best. And, and the three of those, and I was, we were obviously young kids, but the joy that George Best in particular, who mm. was, you know, still to this day, one of the most special footballers I have ever seen. And I've watched Maradona play live and I've watched Ronaldo play live and I've watched Messi play live and I've watched Gascoigne. I'd put, you know, those kind of people in the same bracket. And I would still have George Best really high up on just because he was just unbelievably talented footballer and he could do things that no one else could do in a different sort of way to Messi because it's quite similar to Messi but in a different type of way it was a different era but yeah so so Karen you you talk in there about all those formative years and how impactful and you know I could sit here and listen to those sort of stories because I think they're so powerful in terms of where we got to but if we were to move on you know Mm. what came next and and how did you spin off the back of those formative years to sort of really take you into the the player and then the coach and the the today experiences so I became, uh, I, I sort of made my senior debut, um, when was it, 1984, um, which was the year of the uh, um, Los Angeles 
Olympics. Um, I was in the England squad and in, in the sport of hockey, that's Great Britain who go to the games. Yeah. I was selected in the Great Britain squad. We were in a training squad. We were, by all accounts, going to the games. But in those days, there was only six teams that went to the Olympics um, for the sport of women's hockey. There was 12 in the men's and six in, six in the women's, which again is that, you know, like all those things that play out of unfairness and equal opportunities. Um, Anyway, cut a long story short, six weeks before the Olympics, um, we were at a training camp. I can remember it really well at Crystal Palace. And the president of our association came down and said, I don't know how to tell you all this. We all got called into this room, but we're not going to the Games. Great Britain hasn't been chosen for the Games. What what the uh, Federation International de Hockey did, they picked the top six teams to go to the Olympic Games. Now, England at the time were three in the world. And that's why it was just seen as an assumption. See, I can see you pulling a face there. I can, it was, there was an assumption that we mm. would be going. But the FIH said, well, Great Britain, you haven't got a track record. You don't play as Great Britain. You play as England, Scotland, oh, Ireland and Wales. Okay. Um, so we didn't go to L.A., um, and the men got called up as a late reserve when Russia pulled out. Um, and sort of, so hockey had become my main focus now as sport. Um, and then I made my first Olympics, became in 88 when we went to Seoul, uh, which was when the men won the gold medal. Um, and the women, we, we finished fourth. We lost the semi-final. Um, and it's interesting when people, when I, one of the things I quite often talk about in a keynote is, um, yeah, I've been to six Olympic Games and I've, I've been involved in five Olympic semi-finals and I've only ever won one. So, um, and that was in Rio, the last one. So I'm probably not that successful. <laughs> well, is, is success also quite relative? You know, some people have exactly. not been to any, any Olympics, have they? It, it, been in exactly. no semi-finals. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It is interesting, though, because it does tell you a lot about yourself and, and uh, you know, how the um, disappointments early on in my career actually really shaped and drove me on, I think. I think okay. um, almost the injustices of it. I mean, my, 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 you know, when I look back and I go, what was the highlight of my playing career? It wasn't when we won an Olympic medal in Barcelona, when we won the bronze medal. It wasn't, you know, winning the European Championships. It was actually qualifying for Seoul in 1988, which was done playing Russia in a best of three matches out in Barcelona at the Polo Club there. And there was like one man and his dog watching um, because two neutral teams, you know, there was like probably no more than 20 people and we, we won the best of three games. We won won the first game, drew the second game and won the third game really easily in the end because obviously Russia, unfortunately for them, we went ahead and they had to beat us by a number. So they gave up. Um, so why would you say that was one of the highlights then? What is it be, about that experience? Because there was, I, I think because as a child, I had been absolutely inspired by the Olympics. Right. Uh, and at the time, probably I didn't, Here's the really interesting bit. Though I told, shared with you that my dad went to the Olympics, yeah. I didn't actually know until I was probably about 13, 14 that my dad had represented Great Britain at the Olympics. And I found out, me and my brother found out when we were looking for the Christmas presents in the suitcases in my mum and dad's, uh, <laughs> yes. you know, wardrobe. You 
as you do when you're a little kid. And yeah. what we found in opening was all these international shirts and Olympic shirts. And we were like, who's are these? And my granddad had been quite sporty. And then we were like, this must be granddad. And then we looked at the year on them on the slogan and we're like, 1960, this can't be granddad. It'd have been like, you know, like kids working it out. And then literally going downstairs, my dad was at work, going downstairs and talking to my mum. And I went, just go and put it all back. And then your dad will talk to you about it later sort of thing. And he did, you know, shared with it. So I guess the Olympics, you know, I grew up, you know, co over I loved it. Because I, I was an athlete as well. That, you yeah, know, yeah. I was like everything about, about the Olympics, I, I, because I was in athletics, I actually trained with Zola Bud um, once. <laughs> did one training Brilliant. session with Zola Bud. Did um, you have your shoes on now or something? <laughs> I had my shoes on, so did she, because it was cross country. Right. <laughs> she'd, she'd been brought over by the Daily Mail, hadn't she, to do, um, yeah. well, most people I say, hadn't she? The Daily Mail brought her over. She got a passport to compete for GB. South Africa were in a yeah. apartheid, obviously. And they wanted some training companions for her. So we went all the way over to Guildford, which was the other side of the county from where I grew up with, you know, four of us to train with Zola Bud. We get there, poor girl. She hardly spoke any English at all. She was incredibly shy. It was like a quite a wintry day and she'd come from South Africa. Anyway, we set off on this cross country run, basically, and. She probably ran the first 400 metres with us. <laughs> and then she, she was off because we couldn't keep up with her. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And then obviously what happened to her in 84, you know, with Mary Decker Slaney and, you know, the, the, the accident that happened in her event and the notoriety and everything. Yeah. So Olympics, I'd always been fascinated by all the sports. You know, the every four years when the Olympics came around, a family would be... Glued. glued in front of it and my earliest memory was David Henry jumping the hurdles backwards after he'd won <laughs> his gold medal um and not you know couldn't he couldn't jump them he was so tired that, you know I can remember that that's probably my earliest memory so the Olympics has always almost been something that I've almost like well what were you doing in 1972 well, I'd have been watching the Munich Olympic you know like I can almost yeah. I use it as a point of reference almost for... it's a kind of, I guess what I also hear though is you know again I'm captured by your um your experiences and your connection with the Olympics you know what what true sport does I guess in the Olympics provide is so many kind of highs and lows yeah um, and yeah. you know I guess for some of the, the guys listening in in are there any particular lows that you've experienced and, and how did you manage yourself through? Because I'm sure there were many lows along that journey, but, you know, to be successful in so many, you must have been able yeah. to manage yourself through them. Yeah, I think so. And I think for every experience, whatever it is, good or bad, you, if you, as long as you take time to reflect upon them, or well, what did I learn about myself? What did I learn about the team? What did I learn about the characteristics of my team? What did they do? How did they react? Um, I think that sort of learning... I kind of did it without really knowing I was doing okay. it. So in 1988, for instance, we lost the semi-final. Yeah. Um, we lost one nil to Korea. Like I believe we, um, like that was a golden opportunity for us. I believe we could have done better in that tournament, a bit like the men did. I don't yeah. think we were perhaps good enough to win the gold medal, but we were certainly good enough to beat Korea. And I just came away. It was like, if I ever get in this position again, what would I do differently next time to make, you know, to make the difference? And it was a small difference. We lost it one nil. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, four years later in Barcelona, we lost the semi-final. Um, and then again, we lost the semi-final um, to Germany. It was very close, but we played well. Um, so so there felt like some progression there, there? So some progression, but we went on to win the bronze medal okay. in that. And I'm, I'm convinced that was because as a group, the core members that were left had learned so much from the experience. And it was exactly the same in, in um, London, actually. Um, the, the group of athletes in London 2012, the hockey team, we won the bronze medal. We lost yeah. the semi-final. Again, when that's one of my biggest regrets as a coaching I think we could have and probably should, in my eyes, have made the final in London. I think we had, it was a golden opportunity. Very close call, very close semi-final. We ended up losing it 2-1. But there were, um, there were lessons that we learned from that that held us in really good stead for Rio. What, the, what, what sort of lessons or what did you do? And again, okay. broadly... If, if... Yeah, let, let me talk to that and try and give you... Um, sort of paint the picture of what happened. Yeah. So for us to make the semi-final in London was huge. You know, hockey hadn't made an Olympic semi-final for since we had in 92. And in 2004, the team didn't even qualify. So some of the players that were playing in 25 had been in the group that hadn't even qualified for the Olympics in Athens. So it was a huge, a huge advance to get into the semi-final. And I remember... Um, we were in the Olympic Village and the result in the group, we were playing Holland that evening um, and we would have had to have beaten Holland to get into the semi-final anyway. China lost in the afternoon a game that they should have probably won on paper, which meant we were in the semi-final regardless of our result that evening. Now, this is the learning for me now. Yeah. The euphoria of the group when we could so we were all in our in in on the same level in, in the Olympic Village in the our apartments preparing for our game, but it was in our relaxation period. And we'd said to the girls, you know, we'd had a group post, it's like try not to watch too much of the hockey on the telly, like you because it just uses up too much emotional energy. Mm-hmm. And everyone, but everyone's, you know, they've got to work out as an athlete what works best for you, what your routine is. Anyway. The cheer that went up when the final <laughs> whistle on our level, it was clear that every single flat with, you know, eight athletes in, everyone was watching. And all the athletes immediately ran into our room and everyone was like hugging, jumping up and down. And it was a huge achievement. You know, like we had made the semi-final which were in three days. It was massive for the sport massive for them as individuals and and for coaches it was like oh, massive as well. we have you know like we've taken this team from ninth tenth in the world and you know our aim was to medal in 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 london and now we've got a shot at it you know and in our sport um the difference between success and failure you know that when low scoring game you can get upsets you can get yeah. but we've played consistently well throughout that tournament and we deserved it but and this is the but. So the learning for our group was we probably in the three or four, well, no, we probably, we definitely in the three or four hours didn't give as much application and focus to our last group game against Holland, which resulted in us losing that game narrowly. And Holland had also qualified for the semi-final. So us and Holland were both the teams that had right. qualified. But had we got a point out of that game or beaten Holland, we would have been facing... New Zealand in the semi-final rather than facing Argentina. 
Right. Now, the proposition of us facing New Zealand was far more like our to, the way our two teams matched up. We had a much better opportunity of beating. And I remember, distinctly remember, sitting on the bench with um, the other, with the coaches, Danny Kerry and Craig Parnham. And, and we were sitting on the bench and the girls were doing a lap of honour after the yeah. um, final group game. And Danny, it was his, you know, second Olympics as a coach. And he was rightly quite euphoric. And I genuinely do mean that. He was rightly quite euphoric at what the team had achieved. Yeah. And I turned to, to Spud Craig Parnham. His nickname was Spud. Everyone knows him as that. And I yeah. went, we're going to regret this. There was a huge opportunity there and we didn't take it. And now we're playing Argentina and we could have been playing. We could have been playing New Zealand. And, and fast forward like four years, we were playing America in our last group game. Both of them, us were at the top of the tree. Right. The format had slightly changed because it was quarterfinal, semifinals. So it wasn't straight into. Right. But we knew if we beat America, we knew that the way that the tournament would go, we would avoid Holland in the semifinals. We couldn't play Holland until the final. Right. And Holland in our sport, uh, the number one team in the world, they were yes. the Olympic champions, you know, for the last two Olympiads. And they were the team to beat. And we knew that in a final, we stood a good chance against them, as, as we saw. Um, but it would go back to when we were playing America, the girls were so, and, and all the coaching staff and support staff were so aware of the need to win that game. Right. Not because we needed to win the game because we were yeah. already in the quarterfinals, but... Yeah what that would open up and the girls were so focused and so determined and as coaches we tactically everything was designed around we will win this game so the importance of winning the game the really. importance actually i'm finding a way yeah. to win and we were one we played yeah. very very well in that game right. and we were one nil down which had gone against the run of play but we were on top and I remember, I can distinctly remember sort of the coaching. Danny used to sit up in the stands um, as a head coach and myself and a, another Craig, but Craig Keegan, Keegs, yeah. we were on the bench. And all the coaching points, we kept emphasising to us, keep believing, we're creating opportunities, keep believing, keep pushing, keep doing what we're doing. Don't force the game, the game will come to us. And, and it did, and we ended up winning it 2-1. And, and that then put us on the next part of the journey, which was the knockout phase. We were on the, the journey that we wanted to be yeah, on. The, nearly our chosen journey. We'd, yeah. we'd, we'd, we'd got more control over our journey. If yeah. we could have picked it, this is the route we would yeah. have picked. And what that does for motivation for, you know, everyone's how people feel about the next part of the tournament. is huge. You can't calculate that. Karen, if, if I go quite personal here, did you pick up anything? How did you change between those two Olympics as a, an individual yeah. or as a coach what did you learn about yourself um I definitely learned that not to dwell too much on what's gone in the past right. um so as an athlete I knew that when I played for instance I go back to my first Olympics I was so devastated when we lost the semi-final that when I was playing in the um bronze medal match I I, I was I was still hadn't parked what had happened two days earlier Right. So that was still part of my 
thought process, memories, and I hadn't been able to shut the door on that and focus yeah. on the next, you know, hold on a second here, the next part of what you've got to do, how you need to then restart the process again, what, you know, right preparation, right food, right intake, right training, right tactics, right technique, you know, like get all those side of things and take control of that side of things. How, how, do, you, how do you shut the door on those sort of things? Again, I'm just thinking about performance in the wider world where we have yeah. some, some, you know, either low experience and we have to get up and go again. And I think you've painted the picture so beautifully. I'm just wondering, you know, what guidance or tips would we give to people to be able to manage themselves in that way? I think I think there's two things. I think you've got to um, really be made really conscious of allowing yourself and your group or whoever you're working with, whatever yeah. sport you're in, to really debrief very, very well, right. um, whatever the experience is. Now, in a tournament, um, that might not be possible, like the Olympic Games, because the next game comes around... <laughs> But you must do it at some point. Right. So it must be done at some point. And then you have to be able to capture what 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 would I have done differently if I had this opportunity again? Because that's that's the gold dust. Right. What what did and, and you do that from a personal perspective, as yeah. well as a team perspective, as well as from the individual teams within the team. So the coaching team, what would you, you know, the support team, what would you do? The senior leadership team, what would you mm -hmm. do? The defense group, what would we, you know, like every, you break it down and break it down and you Brilliant. gather that learning. And then and then you make sure that when you're planning for the next one, you you've you've you're doing all the things that you said you, you build would them do. all back up again, nearly, I you guess. Build yeah. them all back up again within a structure and a framework. And if you start sort of applying those processes for how you work, you know, all of a sudden you you the improvements that you make because but the, here's the, the the challenge is being really honest with yourself on how you do debrief. So right. I think it is very easily in failure. And I did this as an athlete and I've also done it as a coach. I think I'm much better as it now is I probably my first instinct is like, who am I going to blame for this? So right. it becomes more emotional rather than hold on, what was I responsible for? Right. Therefore, how did I deliver against those responsibilities? Um, Do you have a sense of when that, when you recognise that, you know, or it changed from actually being a blame an external or look somewhere else to actually the value of internalising it and saying, look, look inward first. Was there ever a, a point in time that you think I need to be more honest with myself here? Um, I think gradually through all the various coaches that you have, you, right. you, you pick up. Um, and one of the, the first coach that coached me in Olympics, Dennis Hay, he was very, very good at taking responsibility. Obviously, you know, a bit like you see it in much more modern day coaches, especially in more professional sports like football. How do you take the media away from the team and actually put it on the coach? And, and that's what he did in a way, but obviously really difficult was he said, he would. He was very honest sometimes. It's like, okay, we lost this game because I got the tactics wrong. And 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 genuinely, he felt that. Right. And he would then explain on you know tactically what, what how he'd set us up and how this then didn't work and why it didn't work and therefore what we would do next time. Yeah. And he was very skilled at doing that. And I learned an awful lot from that as a coach. Okay. I was like. You know, if you set out the tactics and your team don't deliver on the tactics and yeah. it's their fault because 
um, a they've not understood it, they've not asked enough questions, or actually, I've asked them to do something that they're not within their skill set, which as a bit of advice, I would never do, certainly not under pressure. That was one of the things I've learned. Okay. Don't ever ask athletes under high pressure, like in an Olympic Games, to do a tactic or something technical that they've never seen them do before. Right. So you quite often hear about, um, you know, if you're chasing a game, you're one nil down, all right, we're just going to throw caution to the wind and we're going to do this. Well, that strategy, well, only if you know that it's worked for you in the past and you've rehearsed it and you know what that means. Um, so in some ways, try... am I hearing then in some ways you'd, you would nearly, under those pressures, you'd nearly go back to basics, back to the things that yeah. you know really do work. Yeah, yeah. under high pressure, pressure. Yeah. it is very hard for athletes in a sport like that I'm involved with, which is highly dynamic, yeah. just, you know, like the decisions made, there's thousands, hundreds of thousands of decisions that you make every sort of, you know, over the hour that the game yeah. lasts for yeah. and 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 and... But don't, as a, as a coach, don't put a framework on them or a tactic on them that they don't fully understand because in order for them to carry out that tactic or technical point, you have to know that they can do it under high pressure. And if you don't know that they can carry it under, off under high pressure as a coach, don't ask them to do it because you're setting them up to fail, in my opinion. Um, or the likelihood of them succeeding is more luck than actual judgment. Right. This might work, but probably won't. Kind of talk to me a little bit about that high pressure idea then, because, you know, you've been in loads of those environments, both yeah. as a, an athlete, um, as a coach, you know, and I'm, again, I'm conscious of those kind of principles to, to other sports and other worlds, actually. And I, how do you prepare or how did you? And what, again, maybe tips or guidance would you give to leaders or other yeah. coaches or parents or teachers? Yeah, um, I, th I think to other coaches out there and other other. Um, teachers one of the things that we did that worked well for us is we trained harder than we thought it was going to be on right. on a match day so therefore the adaptions that the athletes made regarding their skill their technique their physical you know preparation it was always harder in training than it was mm. in and that sounds really complicated but it's not it can be really simple well you know if your defense is on top well actually we're going to play 10 versus eight overload so, it or something <laughs> overload you know just do simple things or you know or actually we're going to do a highly technical session when you're really fatigued so we're going to do a running session beforehand and then we're going to ask you to execute really fine motor skills under heavy fatigue it's like a penalty corner attack which is yeah. very fine motor skills that people have to care and normally in a match competition you know that's where goals are scored so that's yeah. where the pressure really comes on but you try and replicate pressure. But um, with the more um, international style athletes, we spend a lot of time in the space of how do they want to feel in those high pressure environments? So, you know, a lot of work with psychologists and okay. with them, how do you train the brain to wow. okay. know how you want to feel? So a really great example is the shootout in Rio. Yeah. Um, how do you want to feel when you're standing there about to take a penalty? You know, what's the walk up? What's it going to feel like? What do you want to feel like? How do you want it? Because you can't, with the greatest respect, replicate that to what it's going to yeah. be like. You know, no one's, very few people in the world have taken a penalty for an Olympic gold medal in our sport. So, you know, there's limited material out there. There's loads of data that you can find around penalty shootouts and statistically what this means. But 
to be perfectly honest, that's nothing about, that's not helping the athlete when no. they're actually <laughs> coming to do that. It might be a great theoretical study that, you know, yeah. people will get degrees on and everything else, but it's not going to help that yeah, athlete. It's, it's not um, real. <laughs> it's not real. It's not real. And it's not something, um, and there, you know, I was really fortunate as a coach because in the 96 Olympics, I was involved in a penalty shootout. So I know what it felt like to stand on that halfway line and walk from the halfway line up there. I knew I could tell you, you know, what, you know, how it made me feel, how I wanted to feel. But then I also learned as I got more proficient as an athlete, how I could control my brain to think what I wanted to think in those situations. I'm really conscious here again about your transition from player to coach and now actually a, as I say a coach developer how did you use your experiences there to help others you know uh, because it's such a you know we talked about you can't replicate this and it, it's never mm. real until you're actually doing it but I'm wondering mm. how you can support and help others with the use of your story or your experiences yeah a little bit of that um I I I come from a background where I actually think most of the people that I work with in the coach development capacity have a lot of you know knowledge for their sport and knowledge that is far greater than mine so I've got experiences in my sport and I try and question them in a way that brings it out from them right so why you know why are you doing this like this all right what are you considering all right what do you think you're missing here what would you like to know that you don't know? So, or, you know, like I kind of like think that I, I got much more skilled at drawing it out of other people. Okay. And quite often I get asked the question, well, what would you do? Yeah. And, and I hear that quite often from athletes on the side of the pitch. And, um, you know, like, or I hear that, I pay attention to that when an athlete runs off the pitch and the question that they ask the coach is, what should I do here? And the coach gives them the answer. their answer. Their answer. <laughs> their answer. And that like, is always a bit of a warning sign for me as a coach developer. And I'm like, right. I'm not sure you're solving the problem for that athlete. You're solving a problem in the moment, but you're not developing that athlete and developing that. And so, you know, I, I think like most coaches have been coaching for a long time, I've probably transitioned a lot more from the tell you know, yeah. I tell you what I'm going to do and I'm passing on my experiences yeah. to let's go on a self-discovery together right. to try yeah. and find out what what may be the best way now for yeah. you to do this. Um, and that's what I applied. And that's probably how I and our, we evolved our coaching over sort of the 15 years that I worked at England in GB hockey. So obviously you've got athletes that have been with you through all that cycle so they're much more experienced much more but it's it's right here's a problem on the pitch and when an athlete's faced with it well there are multiple ways that we can solve this all of them right but let's understand together you know how we think we can solve this and then let's explore it what works what doesn't work what works best for us but what that means for all the other components of the team and the understanding and the framework that you build around that yeah Um, and 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 what was your sense of how that was received as you've got into that more kind of uh, inquisitive questioning kind of style from the yeah, athlete? And I think you have to know the athlete in front of you. So yeah. it's not one style fits all. I might have been coaching a team of athletes and a squad yeah. of athletes, but my job was to, and our job and any coach's job is to connect with the individuals that make up that team. Brilliant. And therefore I have to flex my delivery and approach 
so that it does match the learning styles of the recipient. So there's no point in me, um, a, a really good example, the best way I can put it to try and bring it to life is for some athletes, I've just got to tell them. Yeah. I've just got to go, right, tactically, all I want you to do is this and it's X, Y, Z. And that athlete will receive it. Another athlete, I've actually, but I know this, if I tell them, the message won't get through. But okay. if I draw it for them, they can see it and therefore they will be able to. So if you're trying to give me an instruction, don't tell me what to do and don't show me what to do, but allow me to do it or show me what to do and then allow me to do it. I will learn it way quicker. But if you just tell me what to do, it just like I'm, the door's already closing before you've opened it for me because <laughs> that's how my brain works. But if you show me how to do it and then allow me to do it, I will do it really quickly. And 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 the skill as a coach, like I was dealing with 30 athletes, is knowing how to communicate with that individual athlete so that the one message that you wanted to get through to the team got through in the various different styles so that the whole 30 could understand it. And I guess those principles are the same in any team, aren't they? Really, if you're trying yeah, to bring a team together, yeah. is delivering yeah. their message in different ways, but actually it all needs to come to a kind of a common yeah. purpose or a common goal. Yeah. So understanding each individual athlete and they, and, and as athletes get more mature and they get more experienced, they understand what works for them and they also understand what doesn't work for them. So having those um, conversations with them, um, giving them much more ownership much more responsibility, but only giving them that when the time is right. So uh, how can I describe this to bring it to life? So in Rio, we had like, you've got Kate Richardson-Walsh in her fourth Olympic Games, captain, being captain for like 10, 12, highly experienced, highly knowledgeable. Um, There isn't too much in the sport that she's not experienced. Um, And therefore, how I coach her and interact with her throughout that tournament is going to be really different to um, Gisela Ainsley, who's 21 years of age. It's her first Olympic game. She's got, you know, this this is her second major tournament she's ever been at. She's um, she's playing in a certain position on the pitch very alongside Kate. But I'm going to instruct her more along the tail side of the spectrum than I am around the, um, well, let's discover this together. What do you think here? What's worked for you here? So actually, I'm going to be quite explicit with Giselle. When you get the ball here, these are your options. Mm -hmm. When you're marking this player, these are your options. Whereas I'm not going to have that type of conversation with Kate because I don't need to because of where she is in her journey of being an athlete. Um, and, and everyone's aware of that, you know, like Giselle understands it. Yeah. Kate understands it. Yeah. The, the rest of the team understand how we, how we communicate and how we get the best out of each other. Mm. Um, but as a coach, um, I'm, I'm of the belief that there's not one size fits all. Right. You have to flex and find the right mechanism for communicating with your athletes. I'm going to move us on, Karen, and my, yeah. my, my next thought. And then I want to focus in just to some kind of quick fire questions. But before I go there, go it's not really moving us on, but it's also given me a sense of, you know, your, your journey, as, as I've mentioned before, from a, a young person's gone through as a, as a player, as a coach, into coach developing. 
how have the transitions been between the, the different roles and how have you managed those? Because again, whether it's in sport or in business, you know, lots of people are transitioning through careers and yeah. their identities are changing. And I'm just wondering how you've managed those or have you, have they just happened? And they've been sort of lucky uh, evolutions or have they been quite conscious for you and you've managed them? Um, I like the way you've answered that. I think they've been quite lucky for me, but I've often felt that in life. I've right. been quite <laughs> lucky how things have worked out and people poo-poo that to me. Um, I, I do think when I finished playing, I never considered a career in coaching because right. there wasn't any. I couldn't earn a living from coaching. And I had tried teaching and it didn't appeal to me. Um, I don't mean that. I love being around, but it was... Teaching in a formal it, sense, you mean? Like in a teaching formal in, sense. In a, in a, exactly. In a school. Yeah. Exactly. Um, it wasn't really appealing to me. I realised, I, I became a director of hockey at school. Right. And they were good, it was a good hockey school, but it, I didn't get, it didn't motivate me. It didn't, I wasn't happy in what I was doing. Um, I did it to the best of my ability, but it, it wasn't what I wanted to do. And elite sport was the area that I was really enthused by. I always had been, you know, as a kid, it was like, yeah. and therefore I wanted to work in that area, but there wasn't opportunities to work in that area. And then um, with lottery why, why, funding. Why wasn't there opportunities? Because, kind of because um, there were like, you couldn't, I couldn't earn a living from right. being a hockey coach. Right. So okay. I, I became a hockey coach at a club um, and uh, they remunerated me well for the role that I did, but that was me coaching on a Tuesday oh. night and at weekends. So it's not a career. Yeah. I had to have another job to, you know, pay the mortgage Knowledge, and yeah. <laughs> et cetera, et cetera, all the things that you need money for. And therefore, um, I couldn't make it a profession. Yeah. And then with lottery funding and then more professional opportunities opened up at the governing body. So, yeah. you know, there, there became employment of a full-time head coach and then there became employment of assistant coaches. And so my first role was I was the responsible England hockey. For, I was the under 21 head coach, but I also had responsibility for the under 18s and the under 16s, the programs and the coaches within that. Um, and within a year of that, I was working as assistant coach. So as well as doing that role, I was assistant coach with the seniors. And then um, that evolved very quickly into this is untenable, run, you know, basically being away almost with every international squad that England, too much. England had. <laughs> it was too much. And then it became, and then I was actually told by my performance director, you are going to be a full-time with the seniors in preparation for the Beijing Olympics. So in 2005, I joined England Hockey um, in that original role. By the end of 2006, I was only working with the seniors in the full-time coaching role with, with Danny Kerry. Um, he was the head coach, I was his assistant. And then that, 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 that stayed, I then stayed with that. And when I finished coaching, um, at the end of or sort of March 2017, which was a lifestyle choice. Anyone who's been an international coach will tell you that, you know, the sacrifices, family, lifestyle that you have to make is quite demanding. Yeah. The rewards are great as well, don't get me wrong, but I, I was basically living a third of the year overseas and it reached a point where I knew that it, was, it would have been the wrong choice to do in another Olympic cycle. Um, 
so I'd already started well exploring or what else could I do okay I'd, I'd started that probably two years earlier what else could I do or what do I enjoy doing like, and I love I love nothing more and I'm incredibly fortunate and incredibly privileged with the work that I do I work with some you know Olympic Paralympic coaches practitioners and so I've still got that energy of being at the side of the pitch watching you know incredible performers at the peak of their sport you know like I'm, I'm, I go to Loughborough and I look out the window or I'm, I'm in the side of a swimming pool and there's you know mm. you know you can imagine who's swimming in the pool and you're like wow that's so special that's amazing, you know, yeah. like, <laughs> and the and, and you know like I work I still work in coach development for England hockey and I work with the coaches who work with the GB and England squads and I'm still at the side of the pitch but I'm not working with the athletes now I'm working with the coaches yeah. Do you like that? Do you find that as yeah, rewarding or different? Yeah. Or how do you find yeah, I that? Do. I do. I think well, fundamentally one of my key values is I like helping people. people. Um, you know, if, if I look at what motivates me, I've always liked to help people. Yeah. I've always, you know, I don't like being in the spotlight. I've never liked being in the spotlight, but I've actually really enjoyed putting other people in the spotlight and I've enjoyed my part of putting them in the spotlight, if that makes sense. Yeah. What is the spotlight? Because I, I, I was taken actually, and, and I, I, I didn't ask this question, or I didn't ask or make this observation earlier. But I was really struck by the fact that your dad um, played in the Olympics, and yet he didn't really put himself in the spotlight by sharing that with you. And I just wondered whether there was something about there's a humbleness, isn't there, in terms of I just go out there and do what I do, and I don't shout about it. Uh, yeah, I don't. I, I've never really made the connection before with what you said about my father but you might be right I'd need to think about that Dave yeah um, <laughs> that's just what uh, hit me <laughs> yeah um if I'm honest it, it it's more to do with how it made me feel so okay. um I was privileged enough to be asked to be captain of England um and I turned it down mm. and I didn't turn it down because I thought that I couldn't do that role yeah but I turned it down because I knew that I would do the same role whether I was a captain or not. And for me, it didn't, it wouldn't make me be a better player. Whereas other people, I felt it would enhance their game. Right. And there is also a part of me that, um, for want of a better way of putting this, that I it, it never really sat comfortably me being the figurehead of something. Now, I was never head coach of England or Great Britain. I, I did it on a temporary basis um, for three or four months. But, but I do know that I could do it. Yeah. So it's not that I didn't do it because I didn't think I could do, could it, do it or have the skill sets. It was like, I actually think my skill sets and what I would prefer to do, I would prefer to be a, the best number, or you know, like the backup or the oil yeah. or the, rather yeah. than be the person who, you know, is in the spotlight by being the main spokesman or, or driving it. Like I will help behind the scenes and I love doing that, but don't ask me to necessarily get up on the pedestal. I wouldn't choose to get up on the pedestal. Yeah, but I could do it. And yeah. leave them. But yeah. I could, I, 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 I'm, I know I can do it because I've yeah. done it. And I have and done I it, it, yeah, because you have done and it. And I have done it and I've had success in it. Done it with, you know, club sides. Um, I took a club side from uh, the old first division and we became premier, we, you know, got into the Premier League, got to the very top, 
got into European competition, made a European final like over five, six years. We went on that journey. As England under-21s, I led the programme for yeah. four or five years. You know, I can do it. I led the England and Great Britain programme when we had a, um, after t- London 2012 for the best part of six months. I can do it, but it's not something that I would choose as a career choice yeah. to do. It's a lovely point for me because I I really like that idea about what titles maybe do to us or do for us. And actually how, for me, I'm hearing your stories. I was nearly captain in behaviour anyway, but I didn't need the title. I would still play the same role and add the same value and save same inputs on the field anyway. You know, but I didn't need the title. Yeah, I think it was linked to all the things that I don't really like. And that may be why I use the term spotlight is like, the captain always has to do the media interviews. Right. The captain has to do the like, same as the head coach and all that side of stuff. I just doesn't, I don't enjoy it. I don't like it. Um, I do like being recognised for doing a good job. Though. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's a difference. Yeah, so yeah. To me, there's a big difference. Um, but I wouldn't choose to go into that those arenas. Yeah. So some roles and responsibilities come with the job and some of those roles are, are really yeah doesn't sit well on my shoulders um that's not to say as i said that i couldn't do it i just choose not to and therefore you know i'm i'm someone that i have a belief and i've always had a belief that sort of and this is it's going to sound a bit trite and simplistic but happy people will perform better so the the happier i am the better i'll do my job therefore the happy my p whoever i'm coaching are the better they will perform the, you know, the more I ease my support team, as in ease their workflow, make them enjoy it more, enjoy it, the, the, the better that they will be in their role. Therefore, the spin-offs for me are enormous because, you know, like better athletes, happier athletes, performance goes up. Um, and so putting myself into a situation that won't make me happy, I tend to shy away from. Yeah, because therefore the philosophy might be that you might not be getting the best out of me. Yeah. yeah, and I go back to one of my values is I really enjoy helping. You know, one of my values is I like helping other people. Brilliant. Well, Karen, I, I think just by sharing these gems today, we're really going to help people. Just think, think about some of the guidance and the tips and the advice that's come out of your experience. But in many ways, for me, what you've done, or I hope you've done, is, is raised a few questions or areas for people to give some attention to, to just think about, you know, what is your values or what do you really enjoy? Uh, I, I love it when you say that because it really plays to my value system and belief set in the sense of I, I very strongly believe, and I think it's not trite at all, actually, because I think if people are happy and play to play to their strengths, then they're likely to do a good job. And it's nearly as simple yeah. as, it's simple yeah. saying it. I know it's harder to maybe do it. It's- I think, yeah, and, and that's why I probably use the word trite because yeah. I think, you know, you're working in, in an Olympic oh, sport, gosh. you know, like, like for instance, take, we've got 30 athletes in a <laughs> programme or haven't you? You can only ever select 16. <laughs> so, you know, like happiness, if you're equating happiness to getting selected, selected. You're in a, you know, it's really difficult. Um, and, and, that's, and that's one of the things I think as a coach, I think you, I have always tried really hard, like, like, they need to understand the rules of the game. So if they understand the rules of the game, that will And that's not the game. You're not talking the game of hockey. You're talking no, no, about I'm talking about the rule. Game. Yeah. So we can only ever take 16 athletes yeah. to Olympic Games because that's what the British Olympic Association, this the IAC, dictate. So we've got a training squad of this. 
And and just think about that for a, for a second, because in our sport, we're asking yeah. people to give up, you know, four years of eight years of their life Lives. for a, for a event that lasts two and a half weeks over, you know, hopefully every four year cycles. This year, yeah. obviously, because of COVID, it's stretched. But and and think therefore the journey that they're on has got to be more, much more worthwhile than just the outcome, i.e., you know, a gold medal or yeah. a bronze medal or yeah. just part of it. It's got to be much bigger than that. Yeah. It's got to be about how do they grow as individuals? What do they learn about themselves? Nice. You know, not just the skill sets that they're learning. The relationships they get to meet people everything. and enjoy and everything, yeah. But everything, everything yeah. about how they develop themselves for whatever's next in their life. Well, and again, I think I know we've used your experience in hockey as a, a as a kind of a, a focal point here, but I think some of those messages are just very simply um, available to all environments, aren't they? In terms of just working in teams in business, you know, how do Absolutely. we get the team yeah. in the context where people enjoy and get more out of it than you know yeah. the results they get at the end of the day? You know, yeah, I, I, I do. You know, I've done a few keynotes in business now, and one of the things that always amazes me is. Um, well, how do you reward your staff? Yeah. You know, like that. How do you reward your staff? <laughs> and, and they'll say something like, oh, yeah, we give them a bonus at Christmas or we give them, you know, like this. Or I said, what about giving them a day off when they're really busy? And they look at me as if I'm out. I'm like, oh, I might make, <laughs> you know, like, how do you, have you ever tried that? Because it's exactly like, it's like, if you've never tried it, you don't know what the result will be. So if you're not prepared to be creative. So, you know, when someone is massively, like, let's take someone in a, a, work, a, a typical office you know yeah. whatever the, the industry is and they're overworked and they're spending all day at a computer doing this and they're like they're churning out great you know great work yeah. profits are getting etc etc and you just come along and you go Dave you've worked really hard this week take yeah. Friday off no. you've got the whole of Friday off don't <laughs> come into work yeah. and like just imagine the How transfer of what that can mean for that individual yeah. Um, and, oh. and things like that are what you know that's well, I think, what I like exploring but, but I also think you know what 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 I picked up from hearing your story and also knowing a little bit about you know the, the hockey environment is that also we, we look for those little differences the creativity that will make go the extra mile and you know we have to find them because if we keep yeah. doing what we've always done we go backwards don't we so yeah it's just... I, I think that's whoever you are I think um I think one of the traits I look for in athletes and in coaches are, are they curious? Do they yeah. really want to improve or are they not playing at it? Cause that's, yeah. are they committed to it? Yeah. Um, and I'm very privileged in the areas that I work in. It's very rare that you have people who aren't committed that work yeah. in, in international sport. Yeah. Um, and therefore um, the rewards are much greater working with them because you see, I, I get a, a real buzz with seeing people develop. I always have done, you know, I, I can remember when I started coaching my first team and a club team and, and seeing the team develop and get better and improve and the enjoyment that they got from it, yeah. the individual enjoyment that they got from it was such a huge, I've, that just gave me a really big buzz. Yeah. Um, and I'm the same now teams yeah. that I work in you know when, when we're working well and it's effortless and yeah. we're churning out work and we go, god that was good fun yeah. that wasn't work I've just spent yeah. five hours but it wasn't work yeah I don't know about you but I also get that sense with working with coaches you know I know you feel like you're one step further removed or with leaders you're one step further removed maybe from the coalface but actually you can impact on more can't you because if, if it cascades through the system 
you exactly. know, you can really make a big difference with a lot of people. Yeah, so. yeah. you've got to be the, I, I'm a big believer in um, in displaying the, the behaviours that you want to see in others. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think it's that cascade effect can, can help in that. Yeah. Well, Karen, touching on your value set of helping people and also those that are maybe committed in terms of their own development, I've got a couple of quick questions I'd like to throw at you to try and really help, help our listeners. Um, the, the first question would be, you know, you've gone through a great career. I'm sure you've learned loads along the way from individuals, but are there any other kind of books that you would point people to or, or key resources that have, have really um, influenced or helped you along the way that you might recommend other people looking at a similar performance journey to yourself? Um, well, I thought about this question because I've oh. listened to a few of your podcasts. So I'm going to go a little bit of a tangent to some of the others that I've heard. And um, like I really enjoyed and took a lot from reading autobiographies yeah. of people who I had an affinity with so I could relate to them yeah. so I knew something about them and two three of the best autobiographies that I've read yeah. one was on Michael Jordan yeah his autobiography um which was recommended to me when I was quite young and I probably would never have picked that up because I'm not a I don't really follow American sport, but I remember reading that and being absorbed in it mm-hmm. and like, oh, my God, this is so I can I can really relate to this. Um, I remember um, the other autobiography that I read um, were two, really, and, and that I found interesting for different reasons. One was Alex Ferguson's. Yeah. As I alluded to earlier, I'm a big Man United fan and I was just keen to hear in his own words, if you like, and it was written by a journalist that I like, Hugh McElvoy, McElvoy, that's I think it, yeah, it is, yeah, yeah. and that's it. Um, anyway, and, and I, I, took, I, I was disappointed in, in Alex Ferguson's autobiography on many levels because he was an idol of mine because of what he'd yeah. achieved at the club. However, there were some really good learning points in it that I Lovely, took. Lovely, I like it, it yeah. yeah. Um, and the other one that I was interested in and it resonated, it was Clive Woodward's actually yeah. on how he won. But, and, and then the other people that I read, are like, I, I've liked everything I've read from Matthew Syed. Yeah. So that, that would be my recommendation. Yeah. I'm not a big on theoretical theory, yeah. but I'm much more, if it becomes a story yeah. and I can relate to it, I, I, and I, again, <laughs> it comes back that if I really enjoy reading it, um, I won't be able to put it down. And the, and the autobiography side is like, they'd be the ones that I would recommend. Well, and I love that because it kind of resonates a little bit about why we're doing the sports stories kind of idea, because they're, they're relatable stories to different people. And hopefully, you know, you, you've taken stuff out of, you know, Jordan's or Ferguson's story and, and taken the gems mm. that fit and work for you. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, and I hope by sharing your story, similarly, people were listening and say, gosh, that bit really resonated with me or that bit doesn't but you know we take things don't we and if we hopefully can help us move on so i I really like the ideas of autobiography so thank you um in terms of modeling the behaviors you like to see in others you know how do you prepare yourself physically and mentally nowadays to be the best that you can be um i think um but i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna say this like practically how i do yeah brilliant yeah so um whenever uh I knew when I was an athlete that I, I had to prepare myself mentally before a big match or going on yeah. to a game. So if, I, so if I needed to perform well, 
I knew that I had to get myself into a certain space in my head. Yeah. I was always aware of that. Now, where that came from, I honestly can't tell you, but I knew that in order to perform well, I needed to, you know, like people need to warm up and stretch yeah. and everything yeah. else. It, it was almost became like that. Now, I don't ever, I can never recall someone telling me that, but I knew that I had to get into that space. Yeah. If I was going to play well, I had to prepare my brain to think in a certain way and the patterns in order to be, for me to be able to perform. And I guess I've always applied that. Now, um, as a coach, I would do something quite similar. But as a coach, you've probably got less opportunity and time to do it because you are more selflessly having Selfish. to... Do it for others. You know, <laughs> yeah, spread more thinly. But I just got a system that could work for me, um, which was... And it could be as simple, and please don't laugh at this, as taking myself off to go to the toilet. No, no, I don't think so. You know, where in that moment, I could go through a very quick process in my head, which was almost like clearing everything, yeah. clearing the clutter out of my head yeah. and being able to go, this is what I need to do. Yeah, and this is focused, how. Yeah. yeah, and it was more about how I needed to feel. So it was making myself okay. feel right too. So it wasn't necessarily putting, you know, one or two points. It was clearing everything out so that I could feel confident ready prepared you know like even if i wasn't confident yeah, really yeah, prepared yeah. i could train myself to feel it and 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 you know how when do i do that would vary sometimes it would be driving to whatever i'm going to sometimes it would be when i'm there you know like just taking myself away having a cup of coffee or as i say sometimes it's just um uh you know i haven't got time to do it i'm just going to take myself to the toilet yeah, or yeah. I could even do it. So like in Rio, I knew that I, the only place I could do it was actually out on the pitch because of my role. So when yeah. the team were warming up, mm. I could actually do it while they were warming up, even though I was still performing the warm-up tasks yeah. for the athletes. I could still, I'd learned that behaviour that I could make my brain go into what I would call match mode. Yeah. And what I pick from what you're saying there, Karen, and I don't hear this very often, but I really love it, is that kind of the importance of feeling actually it's not about yeah. how I think but actually nearly going yeah. in and resetting myself so I've got the right feeling yeah. and, and, and that was because I learned that if I felt right I would think right yeah so the feeling had to come before the thought yeah. whereas yeah. if I did it the other way around it, I just couldn't make the connection. connection and for everyone my advice was to find out what works for you mm. So you will, if you take people back to, well, when did it all feel effortless? When did it feel like, you know, you were, you were in a meeting and, you know, <laughs> whatever sense, and it just felt effortless and it just flowed. But how did you feel? What did you know? Like, and just getting people to rehearse that and try and replicate that yeah. is, you know, is a great way of making it work for you. Brilliant stuff. Two or three more questions. What advice would you give to a teenage version of yourself coming to where you've got to now? Um, I would say to any sort of youngster asking for advice, career advice, I said, try and enjoy whatever it is you're going to do. Try and enjoy it. Yeah. Because whatever career you do, you're going to be in it for quite a long time, probably. <laughs> Therefore, enjoying it. That was advice that was given to me when I was probably 14 or 15. And I thought that was great advice. And that's the advice I always pass on. Brilliant. Um, so that would be a key one. I think the other thing was always make sure that you are curious about what you do and you've got an 
interest to get better at what you do, even if you're, you know, the best player in the world. I've seen one of the key attributes that all really, really top performers have is the desire to improve. Um, even if it's by improving by, you know, 0.01 of a second, the desire to do that. And I think whatever, whatever level you're at, if someone's intent is to improve, I can work with them. Yeah. You know, if they're intent or their desire, I'm just playing the game here, as in I'm not really trying that hard because I'm not really interested in getting better than my interest with Dwayne as well. So my advice would be... Um, Enjoy what you're doing. Be curious to be continuous improvement, but really capture and learn from what you've already done because your experiences are your own, your unique, authentic experiences, and you will be able to understand them better than anyone else. So explore them. And and that, that would be my three bits of advice. Brilliant, powerful things. Last two questions. One would be, you've had such a great career in so many different places, and, and I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit, but are there any key influences in terms of, well, are there any people you would say, God, that was the pivotal point? You, you've mentioned your school teacher right at the beginning, and I'm wondering if there are any yeah, others. I think, I, I think I've been really fortunate, and, and I, maybe it's the type of sport I've played that I've been exposed to, lots and lots and lots of different coaches and in in every single one of them I've learned something from right you know every single one of them and therefore to single one person out yeah other than I I am gonna there is one person and non-sporty yeah yeah who I actually worked with um when I was an athlete I had to earn a living and because I wasn't (laughs) you know professional or or lottery funding in those days so I worked for NatWest Bank and when I worked for the bank in the sort of 80s and 90s um, it was quite a ruthless environment it was a sales environment and it was all about actually the more sales you get the higher your salary becomes so your salary was around how many sales you made and I learned um, I worked was very privileged to work um, with a with a guy who displayed such different behaviors from all the other managers that I worked with and his name was John Edwards and I became his PA and he just went so against the grain so if for instance we worked with high net worth customers and we they would come to us and they'd want a mortgage and they'd come to us and they'd you know and and what John would do was he would explore the best mortgage for that customer and if that best mortgage was a not at NatWest Bank, it was at Barclays Bank. Right. He, wouldn't, he wouldn't just direct them to Barclays Bank. He would do the work for them. He'd help them fill out the form. He'd yeah. like do everything for them. And, and his logic in this was, I serve the customer, not the organisation. And the customer has come to us with this. And he was absolutely right because the spin-offs of that... God were the fact that people constantly just came back and came back and came back for advice, repeat business, everything, because they trusted him. Trust, isn't it? That's the they word that was in my mind. Him <laughs> because he only, and I learned so much from him about, and yeah. so much in him that I admired. And it was so the, not the polar opposite, it was so opposite of an environment that I had been immersed in because that was my, my working career. It was like, it was like, wow it was 
And it was like, the world doesn't have to be like this. The world can be like this, which is so much more like the world that I yeah. want to work in. So many messages in that little story, isn't there? Mm. <laughs> it just, yeah. The principles yeah. of service and trust and honesty and... Integrity. Oh, integrity, and, everything. And, and follow through. Yeah, that was the other thing. Yeah. It, it wasn't just about pointing them in that direction. It was actually about going on the journey with them, helping yeah. them complete it. And yeah. yeah, yeah. Amazing, man. Well, thank you. And the very final one would be, you know, uh, partly is, is a quick thank you to you for sharing your lovely story. And I, I've been kind of captured by so much of it, which parts of it I knew, some of it I didn't know. But Karen, if there was anybody else's sports story that you haven't heard before, or you would think our listeners might like apart from yours, who, who would you suggest? Oh, wow. Well, that's a good question. Um, well, you've put me on the spot now. <laughs> uh Richard Charlesworth, who's a bit of an icon in yeah. uh, hockey. He's a, he's a gold medal athlete, gold medal coach, um, worked in female squads, then worked in men's squads. Um, was also cricket. Was, yeah. he was a, he's been a politician, cricket. Oh, um, nice. This is for Australia. And he's yeah. also um, had high, like he's been performance director for New Zealand cricket, et cetera, et cetera. He's, he's someone who I've greatly admired what he's done. I, I just think he's, he's a really interesting individual. Yeah. With, written some he's great a, books as well, hasn't he? He has written. I was just going to say, I <laughs> yeah. should have mentioned him in the books. Not his one. He, he did one on Shakespeare and the yeah. comparisons with running team. Not that one. That one went over my head a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it did me as well. But <laughs> His autobiography, his other one was very good. I'd recommend that as well. But he's just um, someone who every time, I, I have a, a love-hate relationship with him because most of my playing career, he was coaching the Aussies <laughs> who were our... And um, but I, I I have a huge amount of respect for him, and I think he's got a lot of ideas that yes, would yeah. greatly value sort of your audience. The people, spot. yeah, yeah. Great, thanks, Karen, and you know, thanks for sharing your story. And and for somebody that doesn't like to be in the spotlight, you know, you've got so much to offer. And I, as I say, I've taken loads from it, and I really hope that it's made those that are listening in take from it. And please, please do keep sharing because I, you know, I think. Um, your intent and your desire to help other people is is infectious. And I guess on that note, should anybody wish to make contact or find out a little bit more about what you're doing, how, how might they be able to hear a little bit more or contact you? I knew you were going to say that. I am on Twitter. Right. I don't I don't use it very much. I've got to be okay. honest, it's that spotlight thing again. I don't use it very much, but I am on Twitter. You will find me on there. Okay. Um, I don't have a really bespoke name because you're going to ask me for it. If you look me up, it's Karen B and it's got loads of sixes after it because well, someone else set it up for me. Well, no, uh, don't worry. And what, what I would often suggest anyway is if somebody was really keen to find out a little bit more, they could always make contact with myself and I'll check yeah, out and all, pass on the details. By all that, means. Yeah, by works. all means. I'm, I'm on all the normal channels like LinkedIn and everything else. So people can okay. normally find me if they want to get hold of me. Yeah. So, um, but thanks, Dave. I've... Um, just to let you know, I did enjoy it. So thank you very much. Oh, well, and I've really enjoyed it. So, you know, thank you. And it's 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 actually more than I thought it would be because, you know, I, I knew we were a little bit, should we talk too much? How much depth would we go to? And we, we've definitely filled the time and it's gone really quickly. So thanks, Karen. I really appreciate your, right. your insights and um, good luck with the, the next bit and keep adding the value. Thank you. And uh, keep going because I'm enjoying the podcast. So. What a lovely way to end, with Karen saying how much she enjoyed the conversation, especially given that she doesn't like being in the spotlight. Well, I don't know about you, I really enjoyed the conversation too. For me, there were so many learning gems, little tips, questions that she posed, guidance that she's given, 
And for me, coming from a person that's been involved with six Olympics is just absolutely phenomenal. Karen's recollection of stories and her feelings was absolutely incredible. You know, when she mentioned about her uh, story with her teacher when she was about four or five and how that actually played out throughout her career and how she recalled that to help drive her and motivate her forward was amazing. And I particularly love the idea that she recalled it when she was making her England debut at Wembley. Furthermore, learning from all of her experiences really stood out for me. Not only the good ones, but also not so good ones. I particularly like the idea when she said she got involved with athletics and how she really learned a lot about herself, both physically in terms of some of the positive aspects, but also how she recognised she really liked playing with a, a ball or a ball sport. And that was really important to her. Furthermore, she also recognised through that experience the importance of being part of a team and how that was important for her and was an integral part of what she needed in playing sport. The last aspect which also stood out for me was the importance of self-discovery and how she wanted to learn along the way and actually how this really played out so much not only as a, an athlete for her but also as a coach. She was become so much more self-aware you know what really motivated her what makes her tick what gets the best out of her and what does she do when she's under pressure and how does she therefore even prepare herself now as a coach to make sure that she's in the best place to be the best she can be for the people she works with. And I think there's a great principles for you know, parents, teachers, coaches, and leaders, those of us that are helping others, how do we prepare ourselves to be the best versions of ourselves? So loads of really great tips there. As always, I think this really plays into the, the principles of sports stories, where I want you to really make sure we provide great guidance and tips to help you help yourselves. So with that in mind, I'd like to propose a number of questions. As Karen was driven by a fear of failure, what drives and motivates you? What are the things that really help you move forward? Second question I'd like to pose, if you believe, as both Cara and I do, that happy people perform better, what role do you play in making those around you be happier so that you can help them perform better? And as it's the last episode in the series, I'm gonna offer in a further two questions today. My third question would be, give attention to what you really value and enjoy. And lastly, how do you reward yourself? So there are four questions there for you to ponder. I hope they're helpful and useful. And as always, we're really keen to help you develop yourself and help your self-discovery, but also see really important to offer a coaching and mentoring support service. So please have a look on the website if you're interested in gaining further support, because we often recognize, as Karen did, that having an external soundboard of the role she played with her athletes, it's crucial to help improve performance and development. So we're at the end of series four. We'll be back again for series five in a month or so's time. In the meantime, we will be working on some great new content for the Sports Stories Academy. And furthermore, we will also be engaging a number of absolutely fantastic guests to bring to you in series five. So, so keep a lookout for what's coming next. Uh, we certainly won't be uh, slowing down. We'll just be ramping things up to bring you more great content, uh, inspiration and education. So have a look on the website. The website is www.sportsstories247.com. So keep in touch. Please tell your friends, family, colleagues, and anybody else who may be interested in the podcast, the resources, and or the Sports Stories coaching and mentoring services, if this is something that they're looking for. Comments and feedback are also really appreciated as we're continuing to practice what we preach and learn and develop so we can continue to improve what we do, provide you with great content and resources for helping you in your development. So our website to keep in touch is www sportsstories247.com 
We're also available to interact with on the usual social media channels, which is LinkedIn, Facebook, and on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is sportstories underscore, and you can also follow me or interact with me at, at Summit Dave. And lastly, it just leads me to say a massive thank you for all of our guests on Series 4 and also you, the listeners, because without you, it wouldn't be worth doing. So thanks very much for engaging and the comments that you fed back have been absolutely amazing and, and inspiring to me to keep doing what we're doing. So thanks very much for that. It just leads me to say, look after yourself, keep well, keep engaging with the questions, keep taking those small steps and those little bits of action. And I really look forward to having you again with me series five of the sports stories podcast in a month or so's time until then take care and we'll see you soon